I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 9 of the Parenting Aces Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and this week we are going to get a little tennis history lesson from author Robert Weintraub. Rob recently published his latest book, The Divine Miss Marble, and delves very deeply into the life of former top tennis player Alice Marble, who went on not only to have an incredible tennis career, but also to make waves on the political front, the social action front, the musical stage, the written word. I mean, everything you can think of, this woman had her hands in. She was unbelievable. And Rob does such a great job of telling her story from her grandparents move west during the gold rush era to her childhood growing up in San Francisco and then making her way down to Southern California, hobnobbing with celebrities and the world's wealthiest families. I mean, it was just unreal. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It is the version that we did as a Facebook Live um, a few days ago. So those of you who saw the video version live on our Facebook page, great. If you would prefer to watch the video version instead of listening to the audio, you can do that on our YouTube channel. And the link to that is in the show notes on ParentingAces.com. For now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode with Robert Weintraub. Good morning, everybody. I'm Lisa Stone of Parenting Aces, and I am joined this morning by Rob Weintraub, who has written a new book called The Divine Miss Marble. I have put the link in the comments, and we'll flash it on the screen as we chat today, Rob. But welcome from Decatur, Georgia. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, so you and I found out we're Atlanta neighbors, but I'm now in California, but you were in California for a while. We've got all sorts of path-crossing things happening in our lives. Yeah, we're neighbors in multiple planes, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> worked out well, and, and the subject of the book, Alice Marble, was quite the California golden girl. She was a real Californian from top to bottom of the state, so it worked out that uh, we would talk and you would be in California. Yeah. Yeah, small world. So I want to just quickly, when I have new guests, I'd like to just give them an opportunity to talk about their interaction with tennis. And as you and I were talking before we went live, you do play. Um, Did you play as a kid? You know, not really. Uh, I, you know, I did the classic basketball and I grew up in the Northeast. So I played a lot of hockey uh, and, you know, football and everything else. Um, And then I really didn't get into it until I moved to Atlanta. Atlanta has a huge tennis scene, (laughs) no doubt know. The Alta, Atlanta Lawn Tennis Association, is massive. People play doubles here all the time. And uh, my then wife, now my ex-wife, got me really into it, and we played a lot, you know, throughout the years. Uh, And I still like to play. I don't get to play as much for the usual reasons, uh, advancing age, declining joints, uh, lack of time, the usual but I do enjoy it greatly. And, um, you know, in a different world, I would have been a lot better at it. It does, never came naturally to me because I didn't grow up playing it. But I right. really liked it. And uh, like Alice, I was a uh, servant. Servant volley was all I had, basically. If it was <laughs> the ground strokes, 
I was nowhere. <laughs> so what drew you to Alice Marble? And maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar with her, and, and admittedly, I am new to the Alice Marble story um, really in the past year, year and a half or so as I've started to learn more of the history of our sport. But what drew you to her? Well, I'll say it's easily forgivable from your standpoint because even historians of the sport, you know, she's not really that familiar to most people. She's kind of lost to history, which is one of the reasons I wanted to write about her. And I didn't know that much about her. I really knew nothing except for, you know, I was dimly aware of the name as just a long ago champion like a Helen Wills Moody or a Suzanne Lalonde, you know, one of these great names from the past, but that's all I knew. Uh, and I was just perusing through a used bookstore, as I am wont to do, uh, and I saw her memoir, her second memoir that she wrote right before she died, and it had all these incredible stories and really just, you know, an amazing life. And as an author, always looking to write about uh, things like that, I, you know, took notice. And, you know, the more I dug into her life, uh, it was very apparent to me that this was someone who required, you know, the 20,000 foot uh, outsider or biographer treatment, um, somebody who could separate fact from fiction, somebody who could put into context really all of her achievements and all of the things she did and claimed to do and, uh, you know, kind of take the path of somebody who was going to, you know, really give her life a real, you know, thorough once over and put it into print and that person turned out to be me. Uh, you know, I didn't really set out to uh, write about her specifically, but once I discovered her story, I thought I had to. Yeah. And your book, The Divine Miss Marble, starts out with a James Bond-esque scene, a car chase on a mountain road and gunshots. And, and then you kind of leave us hanging as you start to tell Alice's story and uh, the story of her parents and her brothers and her sister and, you know, their move to California and subsequent childhood. I, I mean, Alice is one of these women that as you learn more about her, you, you know, you just think, my gosh, how come her story hasn't been told? She is such an amazing role model for young girls coming up in sports, coming up who are interested in politics, coming up who are interested in writing, singing, acting, public speaking. I mean, this woman was in every realm you can imagine. Yeah, she really did it all. And what attracted me really the most when I started to dig into her story and see all the obstacles that she overcame and just, you know, all the uh, valleys that she rose through in her life, uh, her mental toughness was just astounding. I mean, you know, we're kind of, it's commonplace in sports and with athletics to kind of praise an athlete's mental toughness for, you know, coming through in the clutch or whatever. Right. Alice, I mean, she really willed herself to where she was and then willed her past a, pa her way past a series of uh, obstacles and, you know, really blows to the body that would have knocked down most athletes. And she came back every time. And that held true even when she was long past her tennis career. She battled health problems all her life. She was not remunerated financially for her great tennis accomplishments because she played in the amateur era. So she never made a dime for winning Wimbledon or the U.S. National Championships, what we call the U.S. Open now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she came from poverty and wound up back in poverty for a good portion of her life after tennis. 
And despite all these problems that she had, she always, you know, came roaring back. Uh, and that really, I really admired her for that. And it carried me through some of the points where I was a little bit dubious about her and her story for what she told, you know, she, uh, not to give too much away, but I mean, there are some things that I certainly couldn't prove uh, and I couldn't disprove, but there's things that you would have to say were embellished in her story, in her late, in her memoir that she wrote before she died anyway. But the things that are definitely true about her and that were easily proven are extraordinary in their own right. Yeah. Like you say, she succeeded and excelled in so many fields other than tennis. Uh, really astounding. I mean, not just, uh, you know, she was a nightclub singer and she was a fashion designer. She was the first woman to really wear shorts on the tennis court in and of itself, you know, sort of a trailblazer in that regard. And an, an exceptional writer, which as another writer, I uh, certainly appealed to me. Uh, mm-hmm. order, as you said, I mean, she she relentlessly traveled the country for two decades, almost giving speeches about herself and about the will to win, as she put it, and how to live a better life. During the war, she was, you know, tasked with kind of improving women's physical fitness and talking about physical fitness to a, you know, to a nation of women who were not ready for war, theoretically. And by war, you're you're we're talking World War II, World War II just to yeah. clarify for Obviously, people. Yeah. Mentioned that, yeah. Yeah. Her career was, you know, at its zenith. I mean, she was really the not just the best tennis player, but one of the foremost athletes in the entire country in nineteen thirty-nine and then into nineteen forty, you know, what we think of World War II starting in nineteen forty one, but of course in Europe it started in nineteen thirty-nine. She won Wimbledon in thirty nine and then there were there was no more Wimbledon after that. Right. Seven more years, you know, so uh, you know, she was really denied what we, what we would think of as many more major championships. Uh, she won the 1940 U.S. Nationals, and then they didn't play that again either. So, uh, you know, that's a large part of the reason why her name is not, you know, immediately recognizable to so many people as it would be if she had, you know, piled up another 10 major titles, including doubles or 15, which she easily was capable. And mixed doubles. Mixed doubles. She. Yeah. I mean, the woman was winning everything at her peak. She really was a dominant player, and even more so in doubles, perhaps, than in singles, which is, you know, a, a testament to her abilities. And she was a, a serve and volley master. I mean, that's where really the tennis can be divided into a before and after period, where before Alice, women players mostly played from the baseline. They wore these calf-length skirts, you know. It was right. dainty, but it was, you know, a little bit less sort of, uh, athletic. Clean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Alice was exactly the opposite. She came along with a devastating serve that is still considered one of the greatest of all time. Volley, you know, play, the serve and volley game that was second to none. And just overwhelming athleticism that, you know, changed the game entirely and was overwhelming to her, uh, to her opposition, surely, and allowed her to be successful in, as you say, not just singles, but especially in doubles, where she was just a whirlwind and could play with all different levels of partners and still be successful. So she was really an extraordinary player. And as we were saying, certainly an extraordinary woman off the court as well. Yeah. And I know you didn't time this. You couldn't have timed this. But Alice's work in terms of diversity and inclusion are, that's one of the things that really jumped out at me as I was reading your book. And given the time we're all living in right now with the Black Lives Matter movement really taking hold and 
you know, somewhat dominating fighting with space with COVID-19, of course, but somewhat dominating the global conversation right now. Um, I thought the fact that Alice Marble is, was someone who fought for inclusion, fought for her comrades of color to be welcomed into the biggest tennis events in the country and in the world was pretty spectacular because she was, I mean, not just a, a trailblazer in terms of fashion on the tennis court, but also in terms of what tennis really looked like as a sport, as an organization, and often butted heads with the head of the then USLTA, which morphed into the USTA, which felt very familiar to me. So um, maybe can you share with us a little bit about her work around diversity and inclusion, not just on a racial um, perspective, but also sexual orientation? Yeah, no question. I mean, a key element to know, which you're obviously the audience probably doesn't know at the moment, is that uh, Alice was bisexual. Um, this is somebody who carried on affairs with both men and women. Uh, sometimes controversially, sometimes hidden, especially in the times that she was living in, the, uh, the homosexual affairs had to be buried, not just because of the blowback to her personal, you know, sort of burgeoning empire, if you will. Alice Marble Incorporated would have uh, disappeared overnight if she had been found out to be a publicly a uh, lesbian. But certainly, just in general, in the 1930s especially, there was a huge blowback against uh, homosexual behavior in the country at large. And that continued, sadly, into the 40s and later on, uh, even today, obviously. So right. that was something that she obviously fought about in a, in a much more quieter way and, and in a very public and brave way. Uh, she championed the cause of African-American inclusion, which was certainly not something that people did at the time. I don't care who you were, you know, a great athlete or otherwise. Uh, during the war, during World War II, she was playing you know, mixed doubles in integrated settings in Harlem, New York, um, which is, you know, just beyond the pale of any other, you know, certainly no golden girl athlete who is looked upon as one of America's sweethearts was doing anything of the sort like that. And when she played one of these matches uh, in New York, one of the kids at the time watching in the stands was a woman named Althea Gibson, who has a much more uh, familiar name to tennis fans than Alice does. Althea then became, of course, a great player as she grew up and was certainly good enough to play at the national level, but was denied the possibility of playing because of the color of her skin. And Alice very publicly used her still at that point, uh, excuse me, public, um, you know, what's the word? Bully, bully pulpit, I guess you'd say. She had mm -hmm. a column in the uh, USLTA kind of house organ. And she wrote a series of essays saying you cannot exclude Althea Gibson from playing if she is good enough to play at the national level just because she's black. And that was extraordinary, and she got a lot of blowback for that, but also was very successful at doing it. And I don't want to say single-handedly, but really provided kind of a decisive push to getting Althea accepted in 1950 into the U.S. Open, U.S. Nationals. Um, and being allowed to play. And from there, Althea's greatness obviously shone through. And soon enough, she was a multiple major winner and uh, a Hall of Famer in her own right. And she never forgot Alice and the, and the boost that she gave her right at the beginning of her career. So to sum up, I mean, you're talking about somebody who not just was an extraordinary woman in all the ways we've talked about uh, already, which is, you know, at the forefront of so many different uh, 
professions slash you know uh, places to show her excellence, but also somebody who fought for people who were left behind, fought for, fought continually throughout her life for people who were less fortunate than her, and never forgot where she came from. And that's pretty much all you can ask for a heroic figure like that. Absolutely. And you write a lot about uh, the birth of the ATA, um, which is the American Tennis Association, which historically was the Black Tennis Association because African-Americans, as you just said, were not allowed to play in USLTA events. And so the ATA is one of it may be the oldest um, professional sports organization in the world. Yeah, and and not coincidentally, sort of coincidentally, the ATA has been putting on a series of online lectures all week this week, which I've been tuning into. And um, they've been um, really interesting, um, touching on the history of Blacks in tennis, but also um, – you know, talking about historically black colleges and universities um, and then more generic topics such as just tennis development in general, because yes. junior development's junior development, the right. color of your skin, you know, doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. And that was something I really didn't know that much about, to be totally honest. The ATA, you know, again, it was sort of a dimly noted footnote to sort of sports history. I consider myself a sports historian. I've written about baseball history in a couple of books extensively and certainly other sports as well. But um, you know, I knew tennis history to a degree, but nothing about the ATA. And to see the depth and the sort of high level and quality of not just play, but as you say, sort of community involvement involved in the ATA through many, many decades, long before, you know, during the Jim Crow period and even before, uh, was pretty astounding to me. And, um, yeah, they, it was, you know, sort of equivalent to what you saw in baseball at the time, which was its own separate Negro leagues, what they called in baseball. And here you had the ATA, uh, kind of providing a separate unequal, uh, platform for African-American players to perform. But of course it was all, you know, it was never anything that, was worthwhile because it was just not worthwhile. It's not the right word, but just, you know, until the races got together and played on an even playing field as they did in baseball in 1947, you know, you wound up just having tainted basically championships. People, once everybody was included, then you really saw the, the true champions like Althea Gibson shine forth. And, uh, and Arthur Ashe is a, you know, came through ATA. Yeah. Right. And, and that was players who we never really heard, heard of either, which is right. whom I managed to uh, bring out at least a little bit in the book. You know, I didn't want to get too much off on a tangent, but uh, yeah, it was really the depth and quality of the play, as I say, and the level of attention that, uh, and just the level of quality professionalism in the ATA. Actually, the ATA was much better run than the USLTA was for yeah. many, many years at that time. So, you know, that contrast also shown through. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I think might be of interest to the parents watching is the fact that Alice Marble started as a baseball player. I mean, she was a tomboy. She had big brothers and she spent a lot of time on the baseball field well before she picked up a tennis racket for the first time. And I thought it was so interesting, even as she got into coaching, once her own tennis career was winding down, that she 
would have her students go out and throw baseballs. She would teach them how to swing a bat and, you know, do some of the activities that now we look at that and we call it cross training, right. Or developing the whole athlete. Um, But I'm assuming back in Alice's day, that was a unique approach to training for a sport like tennis. Yeah, no question. And, you know, what worked um, to personal level to me was that, you know, I'm a parent, you're a parent, my kids play a lot of different sports. And you see so often now, unfortunately, you see uh, what's sort of con- too much concentration on a single sport for kids, you know, mm-hmm. multi-sport athletes, it's been proven time and again to look at the professional ranks of any sport you care to look at. The ones who really thrive and enjoy what they're doing the most are the ones who play all kinds of different sports. And that was certainly Alice's background. As you say, she was a fantastic baseball player, one of the best in San Francisco where she grew up, and that's boy or girl. Um, she was kind of plucked from the stands and taken as the mascot slash, you know, pregame warm-up, uh, you know, kind of entertainment for the San Francisco Seals, who were the AAA franchise in San Francisco and the, really the big thing baseball-wise in California before baseball expanded west. You have to realize this is – long before there was Major League Baseball in California. So she was one of the biggest stars in the city, even, as you say, even before she picked up a racket, people knew who she was. She was Alice Marble, the baseball-playing girl. I mean, that was, you know, a big thing. She was in baseball throwing contests and, you know, kind of had as a second home Seals Park in San Francisco where the baseball team played. And she also was a very good basketball player and track athlete. I mean, she was an incredible natural athlete, everything she did, and this holds true later in life as well, when she picked up a golf club for the first time, she was a scratch golfer. I mean, this is somebody who was incredibly gifted, but also worked incredibly hard at her craft. And when she wound up playing tennis, you know, her natural athleticism carried her to the very top right off the bat. She didn't have the finer tuning that she would then require. And that's where her coach, Eleanor Tennant, came in. Uh, We'll get to her later, I'm assuming. But yeah, she definitely, um, you know, was able to play at the very highest level just based on her pure athleticism and based on the fact that, as you say, baseball had given her sort of a, a swing and a balance and a natural approach to the game that really carried over very well to tennis. And, uh, yeah, I think people who have kids now learning both sports could do well to see the, the similarities between the two and use both games in their, in their training for their children. I know my son, a uh, big baseball player, and he loves to pick up a tennis racket and club it like a baseball. And, you know, he, he plays pretty well. He needs a little refinement, no doubt, as do we all. But uh, you can see the similarities for sure between the sports. Yeah, yeah. And another thing that I found so interesting about her start in the sport was unlike most kids who were introduced to tennis in her time and even still today, she did not come through the country club setting. Her family did not have means. Um, her father died when she was young. Her mother was a single mom supporting the family. The kids started working very young to help keep the, the family afloat in San Francisco. And Alice came up at a public park in San Francisco. And by whatever happened in the universe, stars aligning and all of that, wound up living this life among the wealthiest people in the world, the most famous celebrities in the world. Um, It was just mind boggling to read that part of her story. Yeah. She grew up playing in uh, Golden Gate Park, which is obviously still a a very uh, famous place to go to San Francisco. And this is before the Golden Gate Gate Bridge was even built. So you can imagine 
the park was there, but no bridge towering over it. Weather-beaten courts, hard, you know, cement, uh, you know, the wind would blow, the balls and the mist. It was very difficult to play there, as, as you allude to. And it was really an advantage for her, as it turned out, because she was so good and, and wound up playing in these hard scrabble conditions when she went up against the majority of her opposition at the elite level, all of whom, most of them, I wouldn't say all, but most of them had come up, you know, through means, learning in country clubs, private coaching, elite settings, you know, everything kind of, you know, what we call helicopter parenting today. You know, everything was smoothed out for them a little bit in front of them. Snowplow parenting, I guess it is. Yeah. Um, Alice did not have that in, in any stretch. And, you know, that kind of break it, you know, do willing yourself to the top mentality really came uh, to help her quite a bit when she reached the elite level and came up against a lot of players who didn't have her mental toughness, as I alluded to before. And, yeah, um, the fact that she wound up being, you know, kind of hobnobbing, she had a very uh, Zelig-like existence. I mean, she wound up standing shoulder to shoulder with some of the bold-faced names of the era. A lot of a lot of these names happened to be great tennis players or tennis fans themselves, which is why they liked Alice. Part of it was through her coach, Eleanor Tennant, who we mentioned earlier, who had a similar background to Alice in that she willed mm-hmm. herself out of the San Francisco streets, not coming from money. She kind of talked her way into becoming the tennis pro at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And through that, wound up coaching, you know, bold-faced names of old Hollywood who loved tennis. Marlena Dietrich, Errol Flynn, particularly Clark Gable and Carol Lombard, who were eventually married and who were great friends with Alice. Uh, and also because of the fact that Alice didn't make any money and you know, at, her, at tennis, kind of had to be subsidized throughout. Uh, that was something that, you know, kind of the millionaires, the swells of the era enjoyed doing, especially for a great personality and a winning kind of champion like Alice, who everybody liked upon meeting almost immediately. She had that kind of all-American girl next door, you know, in quotes, the golden girl personality, the sunny Californian. And uh, the likes of William Randolph Hearst and uh, the DuPont family and many, many other millionaires at the time really took to her and they would you know, bring her to their mansions where she would live for a month before the U.S. Nationals, you know, and she would go to England and live on these palatial estates before Wimbledon. Uh, just despite the fact that she didn't actually have enough money her, of her own to really even open a bank account. I mean, we're talking about a real, you know, she lived this jet set almost lifestyle. And yet at the same time, the dichotomy was she was very poor and was in hock, actually, to Eleanor Tennant, who had paid her bills almost completely since taking her on as, as a student. So she uh, lived, a, it was a fascinating kind of double-edged life. And that I think led to a lot of what happened with her later in life. And perhaps some of the feelings she may have had as she, her life wound down of never, not only being fully appreciated and fully remunerated for her achievements, but you know, and she always gave the people what, what they wanted. That was her thing. She was a great audience pleaser. And I think that uh, kind of, had its, you know, kind of fruition or starting, uh, I should say, its genesis uh, by hanging around with all these Hollywood types and, you know, seeing how they operated with the public. And she really studied that very closely. Yeah, she, I mean, was amazing at building her own relationships, too, and creating opportunities for herself to earn some money and try and repay, teach um, for all of the years that, Tenant, you know, supported her, as you said. Let's talk about Eleanor Teach Tenant a minute. Um, I, I knew her name. 
prior to picking up your book, but I didn't know much about her at all um, beyond her name and found her story equally fascinating to Alice's. Yeah, you do more than I did. I didn't even know the name. I mean, I really knew nothing about her. Uh, and as I came to discover, she's almost as worthy of a biography as Alice. I mean, another extraordinary person, as I said, willed her way out of San Francisco poverty. You know, there her family she came up during the 1906 earthquake and the city was leveled around her. She stole a tennis racket from a boarder who was living in her house and kind of became interested in the sport that way and willed herself not quite to the heights that Alice did in terms of tennis greatness on her singles sort of level, but was certainly a, a well-regarded player. And then, as I said, talked her way into becoming a tennis pro and taught uh, some of the biggest names in Hollywood and, and around. And she also taught these mass clinics where she was really gifted at being able to get across simple precepts of the game and have students play the way she wanted them to play. She was also what we would consider today, you know, sort of a the hard line kind of Lombardi-esque, Vince Lombardi, Bill Belichick, these names that we all know from football and male sports, team sports is this kind of, you know, psychological mastermind and somebody who managed to get the best out of their their players no matter what. She was doing these things, you know, with Alice back in the 30s. I mean, they had a real, you know, Alice was like an Eliza Doolittle kind of figure for, for Eleanor. Eleanor's great dream was to find somebody of limited means like her, like the way she grew up, and then kind of take that talented lump of clay and really mold it into a, uh, not just a champion tennis player, but a, a person who could mix with the blue bloods and the Hollywood elite that she was mixing with. And Alice fulfilled all of those dreams for her. And of course they had a very, very close, very close relationship. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which is kind of like, I, and I don't know if it's cause I haven't finished the book yet, but it's still unclear. Well, that's the thing, right. They never, you know, they never uh, said, came out and said, even in private, they never came out and said openly, we are lovers, despite the fact that they, for a period of time, were joined at the hip. I mean, they were basically together and lived together for almost a full decade of the 30s. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was in part because Eleanor, you know, gave a lot for Alice. I mean, she really gave up herself. Alice was, this is a part of her story we haven't even talked about yet, but right at the brink of her kind of pushing through to the very top of the sport, Alice was then collapsed on a court in Paris at the uh, Roland Garros Stadium, where the French Open is held now, during an exhibition leading up to Wimbledon and was out of the sport. She got a diagnosis of tuberculosis, which at the time was not just almost a death sentence, but certainly right. her tennis career was basically finished. And she was 21 and just about to break through and be, you know, perhaps a, a great champion. And for two years, she was out of the sport and Eleanor not only supported her financially this entire time and paid her doctor bills when Alice was laid up in a sanitarium for months at a time, getting fat and doughy and just losing all, you know, zest for life. Eleanor basically broke her out of the place and said, enough of this nonsense. You're coming with me. We're going to start a regimen. You're getting back to the top. I don't care what I have to do. And again, an extraordinary example of the willpower and mental toughness, not only of Alice, but of Eleanor, the two of them did it. It was considered when Alice then won in 1936, the U.S. National Championship, an extraordinary comeback story, the likes that had seldom been seen at that time in American sports. And Alice was deluged with you know, letters and, and telegrams from people, not just congratulating her, but asking her, how did you do it? How, how did, did you do it? Right. Back? Yeah. You know, I have problems right. in my own life. How can I overcome these things? You know, she had answers for them, you know, 
to a certain degree, but obviously what the real answer was, was her incredible willpower and, and mental toughness and having a coach who believed in her and refused to let her give up as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the story there together, what they did together is really the heart of what I think is the, is the tale of Alice and, and her success. And when they came apart for various factors during the war, when Alice's career was basically over on the court, uh, you know, it was appropriately operatic and dramatic, as you would expect to have between two, and I, and I use the word lovers sort of in a broader sense, uh, forgetting about the, you know, sort of titillating physical idea of the two of them together, which I think is unquestionable that they had at least a brief relationship that way, but they had really had a much stronger bond even than that. It wasn't like just, you know, uh, some physical relationship that peters out. I mean, the two of them were as close as they possibly could, and they shared almost a single mindset throughout, you know, a, a long period of time and both learned from each other greatly. And Alice, especially learned from Eleanor. And, um, you know, it's, it's really, as you alluded to at the beginning, not just an amazing tale, but really an unknown tale of, you know, kind of coach athlete relationship that you, you know, you hear so many stories, especially in tennis about how that goes so wrong. So often, mm-hmm. whether it's a parent involved or just a, coach and the player don't see eye to eye or there's you know various other factors involved here is you know an incredible success story that went on for you know, almost a full decade and uh surprised me i knew nothing about any of it before i started the research yeah and you know one thing we didn't mention is the fact what well, we said at the beginning that alice's father passed away pretty young and so alice's mom was a single mom raising these children but then the mom got cancer and also passed away when Alice was in her early 20s. Early 20s. Is, yeah. yeah. I can't remember the exact age, 23, 24, somewhere in there. So she also lost her mom. So having this strong female coach in her corner, um, I would assume, was really instrumental in helping her kind of stay on her path to the greatness that she achieved in all these different areas of her life. But, you know, as you're talking about her recovery from her illness, I mean, you also write about car accidents that, that injured her and other illnesses that she contracted over the years. So, I mean, it was a constant battle against her body to stay healthy and stay out on the circuit. Um, She developed these very specific eating rituals, exercise rituals, even meditation and mindfulness. You don't use those words in the book, but as I was reading your description, it's certainly what she was doing. And, and during World War II, you know, was contracted by the government to share that information, as you spoke about earlier, on a national scale, which I just thought was fascinating because, of course, most of us have heard of Jack LaLanne as being the fitness guru, right? But whoever heard of Alice Marble in that capacity? And it seems to me that she played an enormous role in helping to educate the American female public about the importance of self-care and fitness. No question. I mean, she was like Jack LaLanne, but if you also had this sort of mental uh, element thrown in, I feel like Jack LaLanne is mostly just, you know, physical uh, you know, training and regimens and Alice was all for that, but also very much for the physical, uh, the mental, I should say, uh, will. Uh, she even titled her speeches, The Will to Win, 
which you know, sort of dovetailed with her comeback in 1936, but it really was more like a life coach and a life approach that mm-hmm. she uh, really you know, worked hard on. And as I mentioned earlier, I think was just relentless in delivering. I mean, this is another factor that you have to understand in context, but I mean, she was driving and traveling by herself constantly and months at a time throughout the country in the late 40s and during the war and then after the war in the 40s and 50s by herself as a woman driving hundreds of thousands of miles at times. I mean, she was, as you mentioned, got into a lot of car wrecks as well, but kind of statistically makes sense because of the amount of driving time, the amount of mileage yeah. she just put in. And she was giving these speeches sometimes, you know, in, in a lot of colleges, a lot of women's colleges, historically black colleges oftentimes, in, you know, out-of-the-way places in the South and in the West, places you know, stars of her magnitude never went to. And it was all to kind of pass along what she thought it was critical, which was that not only is it important for your mind, for your body to be kept in fine fiddle, but your mind as well. Get a ton of sleep and, you know, have a positive attitude. Think about what you want to do before achieving it and don't let anything stand in your way be, uh, until you get to your your goal and reach your goal. And this is pretty, that's pretty uh, progressive stuff for the 40s and 50s for a woman to be saying that and be just traveling around basically on her own. And she learned a lot of that from Eleanor, no question about it. I mean, Eleanor kind of filled her head with this and originally designed a regimen for her to follow. But And Alice, as Eleanor would say, was an incredible student of hers in that she took to all these things. If there was any smallest thing, you know, the number of eggs she ate for breakfast or the number of times she would skip rope before taking the court or whatever, anything that she saw would help her achieve her goals on and off the court. She took to and never looked back and never, ever thought twice about doing anything else. So uh, the two of them were, you know, kind of dual responsibly at the beginning, but Alice unquestionably was, you know, very much ahead of her time in, as you said, alluded to kind of combining the sort of holistic approach uh, of mind married to body and having it work as, you know, a way to achieve your goals, not just being a top flight tennis player, but anything. And uh, that certainly was the case during the war and really took flight even more so afterward. And I mean, just so our viewers kind of understand the context of all of this, the reason that the government kind of contracted with with Alice to make these talks around the country was because the men were all off fighting the war and the women were left here in the States to take over the jobs that the men were vacating to go fight. So it a lot of those jobs were physical in nature and required physical strength, physical endurance, stamina, and the mental, you know, stick-to-itiveness to, to push through when things got difficult because work conditions during the 30s and 40s, um, you know, could be brutal. Right. You're talking about a, a, a populace that had just been, was still really in the throes of the Depression. I mean, right. One of the things that you sort of see that was striking to me was just how much Alice and Eleanor sort of skated through the Depression almost on dint of their you know celebrity uh, in particular. But obviously the rest of the country did not. And when Alice- But they were already broke. So, like, yeah, you know, lose, exactly. It was sort of yeah. like, you know, that, that was a reason they took a lot of the I don't want to say chances, but they sort of had that attitude of 
we got nothing to lose. Let's just, right. you know, let's ask. And what's the worst that can happen? And that happened throughout their their lives in not just tennis settings, but in, in all kinds of settings. Alice got to do a lot of things because she asked to do them or just did them without asking permission, you know, and that's sort mm-hmm. of what's the old line about how, uh, you know, better to ask forgiveness that and then yeah. women don't change history. Things like, you know, yeah. she just did things and never really said, never really questioned herself. She said, yeah. I'm doing it. And if I turn out to be wrong about something, then I turn out to be wrong. I don't care about that so much, but I don't want to be stopped from, you know, trying something new, like singing as a nightclub singer, right? Uh, for example, getting up on stage when she had never done that before and making her debut, you know, in, in front of New York society in this incredible uh, settings. I mean, you know, it, just the thought of that paralyzes me. And she's just like, oh, I'm doing it, of course. <laughs> yeah, she was brave. I screw up, I screw up, you know, what the heck. But right. um, yeah, to get back to your point about, you know, the setting and, and the war, you know, there was sort of, Again, as I said, you know, we don't really think of it this way here in this country because for us, the war didn't really start until Pearl Harbor at the end of 1941. But, you know, in 1939 and especially 1940 and into 1941, a lot of the country was sort of on a war footing without being declared uh, as being in war. And certainly at the highest points of government, they knew that a war was coming. And Alice knew a war was coming, a large part because she traveled to England often to play at Wimbledon, knew was told a war is happening and then the war broke out in Europe and she was kind of appalled by what she saw as American sort of soft style of light. And this is during the depression and she thought right. it was too soft you can imagine compared to her, most of them were. So she was, you know, in a unique situation. That's why she was sort of tapped to be the person to really speak to women and demonstrate to them how playing sports and being active you know, you didn't have to, she wasn't advocating to get on the tennis court and play three sets of tennis. She was advocating for walking and for, you know, eating properly, getting good sleep, you know, getting in a little exercise where you could, that kind of stuff. Then when the war happened, it, it sort of was almost, she was made redundant when U.S. went into war because everybody sort of took that attitude that she was pushing so hard and often was running up against brick walls. And then everybody overnight sort of said, oh yeah, she was right all along. Let's do yeah. It. And she was sort of made redundant. She, she wound up giving the same sort of advice and, and touring and wound, and talking with uh, and playing tennis for uh, the troops, male and female, mainly mainly female. But there were still a lot of training um, bases where there were a lot of male troops uh, here in the States and also in, in the Caribbean where she wound up spending a lot of time as well. So she was doing this relentless travel, as I mentioned, and, and talked and everything about it, even when her she wasn't in the official capacity of the government. She was still doing it just Mm -hmm. because she thought it was the right thing to do. And it had been successful for her. And I guess we won the war. So it worked out. Okay. (laughs) And she, she traveled to the bases with her doubles partner who was British, right? Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, somebody who also had much more of an idea of what was going on, quote unquote, in the real world, you know, in Europe, uh, then, most Americans did, you know, most Americans were sort of like, well, it's another European war. And if we have to get into it at the end to bail them out, like we did in world war one. All right, we'll do that then. But uh, yeah, the, the, obviously the war became much more uh, of a global conflagration and much more severe to the average American than most people thought it would in the 1940 and 1941. And being somebody who basically kind of 
was a, one of the last faces that a lot of these kids saw before they went to overseas to Europe and the Pacific. She was right there, you know, both in New York and traveling to all these bases. She was very upfront about spending time with kids who were about kids is a little bit loose, but you know, a lot of them were yeah. soldiers and, and flyers and sailors who were about to ship out. She spent a great deal of time with those people and sort of was like in a, not just, you know, put aside her will to win speech and, and her sort of hard way of looking at life as a, a disciplinary and was very comforting to these people and to these guys. And, you know, kind of was like, remember me when you are off fighting the, uh, the Hun or the Japanese, you know, she, she put herself in that role too. And was very successful at that also. So she was able to take on sort of multiple personalities as the setting dictated. And that, as we said earlier, she was very good at sort of, looking around and seeing what kind of personality was required for her to put on at any given moment. And I, I don't mean that to sound as like a false way. She was just, you know, she was very adept at mirroring mm-hmm. what the person she was with. reading the room. Reading she the read room. the room, yeah, read the room and was very comfortable with all manner of people. And she was certainly very comfortable with people who grew up uh, with no means, you know, as mm-hmm. she did, that was the thing. She was, able to get by with all these millionaires and Hollywood celebrities because of her personality. But really she was most comfortable with, you know, kind of the average Joe or, or Josephine uh, and made them feel like they were, you know, on top of the world and were fighting the war single-handedly. So that was a really uh, impressive part of her personality as well. What makes it even more impressive, Rob, is the fact that as a young tennis player, when she was just starting up, she had a temper. And I mean, oh, yeah. She was feisty. She was throwing rackets and, you know, not yeah. not behaving in the most ladylike, sportsmanlike fashion. And like Roger Federer, we've heard stories of him as a young child, you know, of how feisty he was. And now we watch him and we're, you know, in awe of his grace on the tennis court. Alice developed that as well and took that you know, into life off the court, which, you know, you've been talking about. Right. And it's funny you mentioned Federer because somebody asked me just not that long ago, you know, who in the modern era would I compare Alice to? And of course the obvious answer is, you know, sort of part Martina Navratilova, part Chris Everett, that she's sort of the, you know, child between the two. She had the blonde, all American, you know, kind of grace and style of Chris Everett, the all encompassing athleticism and, and ferocious play of Martina. But really, she reminded me most of, of, as you say, Roger Federer, uh, not just because of what you said, kind of overcoming her her tennis brat kind of, you know, temp, uh, tempestuousness when she was young to become a, a real uh, graceful player and friendly, you know, one of the most popular players really of, of her era, uh, among her other players, even mm-hmm. not just in the in the general public, but other players really adored her. And I think Federer encompasses, uh, encompasses that. And also, she was a real uh, fashion plate. Which uh, Roger, yeah. you know, to varying degrees, perhaps depending on your taste. But uh, yeah, she not only was she sought after as a as a model for many fashion designers to wear clothes, but she was a fashion designer herself, and uh, you know, not only made tennis clothes, but everyday clothes, and during the war in particular, made designed shoes for the people, right. the, the women who were spending their days, you know, in the factories and on their feet suddenly, and she designed comfortable wear for these uh, newly employed people, newly employed women, and did all kinds of other uh, interesting fashion um, designs that she just drew up and and made herself. Another example of 
her just saying, I'm going to do this. I have an interest in it. And if somebody tells me they're not interested, then fine, but I'm not going to let it stop me. And, uh, you know, I, I think you see a little bit of that in Federer as well. So you know, it's, it's great that you mentioned Roger because I really thought of him a lot when I was writing the book. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, another thing that Alice got involved in, I mean, I'm telling you, this woman is like the definition of Renaissance woman, right? Yeah. I mean, whatever she wanted to tackle, she tackled and tackled at the highest levels. She got involved in the women's movement in the States, but got a little disillusioned with that, too. And I just finished watching the series Mrs. America, and I don't know if anybody else has watched it, but... um it was really interesting because I was a little kid when all of this was going on, but I have memories, some memories, especially of the personalities involved. Um, didn't realize there was a tennis connection there, but there's Alice Marvel. Yeah. Well, and again, it's, this is a, the part of her personality that was interesting enough to me, which is that in parts of her, you know, we, we have talked about how progressive she was and she's certainly fighting for women's rights throughout her career obviously gay rights and African-American rights, but there was, she had a streak of conservatism too, which uh, was not. Right. That was so bizarre to me too, to read that. Uh, You know, and I'm not sure if it's, you know, you see this a lot in California. I I associate it a lot with California, funnily enough, which is that there's this, you know, kind of, we associate California with being this, you know, incredible liberal place where everything goes, but there's a historically certainly a strong streak of, conservatism coming out of California and obviously you have Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan coming out of California. I mean, this is not, I live in Richard Nixon country. Yeah, I live in Orange County. So <laughs> is, uh, the heartland of it. Exactly. Yeah. She spent a lot of time there and in Palm Springs, which is another place you know, yeah. in the area, which is also a, a font of that. And so she had a bit of a, you know, a mix of the two. I mean, she was certainly, again, it was part of her personality where she believed what she believed. And a lot of it was, was, uh, sort of informed by the uh, the anti-communist stra- uh, era, you know, the, the Cold War and what she thought of as, you know, kind of this struggle between these two, you know, dichotomous uh, ideologies. But also what we were talking about earlier, which was, you know, she willed herself up from the bootstraps, kind of this conservative for what you would make of it, not to get into a political discussion, but that's something you hear from uh, the conservative, you know, sort of... Uh, way of thinking a lot is, you know, do it yourself. And right. that's what she did. And whether, it, you know, it, it certainly didn't necessarily jibe with a lot of the things that she thought about in terms of equality, but that aspect of her personality really did. And it was very interesting to see, you know, the two sort of sides of those come together and clash at times. And then later in life, she, she kind of went the other way and saw what uh, sort of the conservative movement had done to many of her friends and in, in the, you know, less advantaged communities and uh, kind of had a late in life, you know, difference of opinion with many of her former conservative friends and, and changed a little bit politically. But, you know, it just made her personality even more interesting to me. And, and you know, it was another surprise. Like I said, uh, often about her, you know, you peel the onion layer away and there's something even more fascinating just a little bit below the surface. And there, this is another example of that. Right. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that I talk about a lot on the Parenting Aces platform, whether it's articles or podcasts or whatever, is the life lessons that tennis can offer to kids who get involved in the sport, but also the opportunities that tennis can offer after your competitive career is 
finished. And um, to me, she is the embodiment of that, right? She learned these lessons through competing in tennis, through coming up, you know, as an underprivileged child in a single parent home, um, you know, not having means and use tennis as a tool to improve her life and then to improve the lives of others. Right. Yeah, no question. And even what we touched on earlier, you know, is sort of the way she was so good at doubles and, you know, was able to defer to other partners and then take the lead when necessary. And, you know, when she first started playing, she had trouble doing that, you know, and then, you know, as her career went on, she really, that became a particular strength in her game. And it's all part of the same sort of uh, rubric that you, that you mentioned, which is that she took the lessons that she learned playing tennis and what tennis brought to her and the athletics in general too, not just tennis, but mainly tennis, obviously. And uh, yeah, applied them to her life and applied them to making people's lives better. I mean, what else can you ask for from a champion? And again, I think we, this is the Roger Federer connection a little bit too. I, I saw some of that too. He, he's somebody who certainly gives of his time and, yes. you know, and his money. And, and his money. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, that, what else can you ask for from a great champion other than to not, you know, kind of kick the ladder down and, and just say, I made it and nobody else can, but to help other people and get up to achieve at least to a degree what you have too, and show them what you've learned along the way. And she was, you know, the, an embodiment to that. And uh, I just had more and more admiration for her as I read more examples of what you're just saying, that the way she did that in life was, you know, was paramount, even as she didn't have the means that we think of it, certainly Roger Federer or anybody else in these, this day and age, who's a, a great tennis champion, you know, the, the 500th ranked player in the world made more money than, uh, than she ever did playing tennis. So, you know, even though she was forgotten and not, you know, given her due, even in her time, perhaps, um, she still, you know, gave of herself and coached and was forever out there telling people, you know, here's what I learned from my days on and off the court. Apply them to your own life and you can be successful too. Yeah. So the book is The Divine Miss Marble, and here is information on how you can purchase it. Um, we have it in our shop on Amazon. So I will say disclaimer, Parenting Aces may get a penny or two if you buy it through this link, but certainly it's available. Huh? <laughs> Who deserves it more, right? I mean, you know, we'll take we'll take it. But um, the link is in the comments as well on this live stream. So if you don't have time to jot it down, um, if you go to Amazon.com slash shop slash Parenting Aces, you'll see the book right at the top of the page. And what's next for you, Rob? You mentioned being kind of intrigued by Eleanor Teach Tenant is... Yeah. That a next book, maybe? Well, I mean, I think I did her as much service as I could possibly do in this one. So perhaps uh, I'll, I'll let that stand. I don't know if I, I think I flushed out as much detail about her life as I possibly could. I don't know if there's anything left. Um, part of what I did in this book was, and I didn't plan on doing it, and we didn't really even get into it very much in this podcast, but, um, you know, I, I kind of inserted myself into the story a little bit more than I yeah. have in my other books, and I plan to do uh, because of sort of the detective work needed. I you know, I, I had a friend of mine who was really into detective novels say to me very early in the process, you know, what I love about the books and mystery novels is not really the plot, but the process of watching somebody, you know, kind of find out the information and, and see what's true and what's not. 
so I took that to heart and I kind of, you know, as I learned, so does the reader learn about all these right. things about Alice for good and bad. Um, so to answer the question, it, 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 that kind of process actually wound up appealing to me. So uh, I don't necessarily have anything I can talk about just yet in terms of the subject because you okay. know, these things are sort of tenuous. But uh, I think I will would like to at least uh, in part include myself as part of the story. Not that I'm that interesting, but, you know, just in terms of, you know, following, giving the reader uh, uh, something to follow along with in the grasp on to uh, as they read as well as kind of appealing. I like to read about stories like that. And I, I hope certainly wound up liking writing that way. So uh, I'd like to do it again. If that would be the case. That'd be nice. And that would be another legacy of Alice Marvel, a small one, but an important one for me anyway. There you go. Well, I love that. Again, the book is The Divine Miss Marble. Here's the link. If you'd like to purchase a copy, I highly recommend it. It is a fascinating read. Um, you'll learn a ton about tennis. You'll learn a ton about activism. You'll learn about our history um, during the war. You'll learn about the women's movement. I mean, so much. There's a lot in there. I tried to, uh, she compassed, you know, she she touched on so many different things that it was great to be able to write about all these different elements. You know, it's, it wasn't just about her, as I said, putting her in context allowed me to write about old Hollywood and about, you know, San Francisco uh, of that era and during the depression and all, and of course the war and post-war era and, you know, the World's Fair she touched on and Various other things that happened. The gold rush. I mean, gold rush, absolutely. Yeah. Her her family was involved in that. So, that yes. In California, her, her paternal grandfather was from Maine, or both her grandparents were from Maine originally. And they wound up moving to California to seek their fortune. Uh, and Alice, in her own different way, saw her fortune too and went east out of California to do so, ironically enough. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Rob Weintraub, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. It's It's been fascinating, and I can't wait to finish the rest of the book. <laughs> I, I did my damnedest to get through it before our conversation today and just didn't happen. But There's nothing that you can do about it. Don't worry. Well, it's just so meaty, and I, I thought, well, I'll just skim through this chapter. I'll skim through And it's like, no, I can't. There's right. too much to absorb here. So. Devil's in the details. Exactly. exactly. Well, thank you again, and and I look forward to your next project whenever that comes about. And if it's tennis related, I hope you'll come back and share it with us. No question. And if it isn't, I'll be glad to do so anyway. <laughs> Perfect. We'd love to Thanks have so much, you. Lisa. I appreciate it. Thank you. And to those of you watching, I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Rob Weintraub about his new book, The Divine Miss Marble. One more time, here's the link if you'd like to purchase a copy. And uh, we'll see you next week. We've got more of these live streams coming. I think we've got one on Monday and they're just going to keep coming next week. So hope everybody's doing well and we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. Bye, everybody. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.